Welcome to the Ordinals Podcast, produced by Ord Media, featuring the top builders, projects, and investors pioneering Bitcoin inscription protocols and the future of digital artifacts. Welcome everyone to the Ordinals Podcast. I'm your host, Ragnar Leaf Fraser. Today we've got a full schedule going to talk about ordinals 2023 a little bit the protocol development what it means to be a cypherpunk and ordinals and inscriptions all of this is brought to you by cypherpunk cypher very happy to have him here he describes himself as a developer and tech and developer advocate and my favorite a grumpy dinosaur so welcome to the ordinals podcast cypher hey thanks for having me on today ragnar uh yeah the grumpy dinosaur that's a new one i i'm kind of Surprised you'd picked up on that nickname that a few people have started using. Uh, turns out, if you're a cypherpunk who is actively uh, campaigning at times for taking the cryptographically secure route instead of the easy one, it can come across as being a little bit grumpy about things when the new kids just want to play in the Bitcoin and don't want to learn how to make things secure, safe, and uh, you know all the things we love. Well, I appreciate the grumpy dinosaur because sometimes I feel the same. You know, I'm not in my 20s anymore, right? And I've <laughs> been around the been around uh, the carousel a few times, kind of seen it all. And so at this point, you say it's hard not to just call things out sometimes. And the older you get, the more you kind of don't care about telling the truth. So I actually really appreciate grumpy dinosaur. Um, and you also are at Luxor Tech. So real quick, tell us about what you got, what you do there. Yeah. So uh, Luxor Technology is obviously a Bitcoin mining pool. Uh, one of, I believe, currently the 14th or 15th largest. Uh, they purchased Ordinal Hub, which was a early uh, aggregator of collections before collections were really even a defined idea within the Ordinal space. And that led to them, that and obviously Nick, the CEO's heavy involvement in the, in the uh, ecosystem, led to kind of a lot of us gravitating there. Uh, now they've hired on a few other people from the industry. We run full tech stack, including our own indexer, uh, you know, other services that we're building out. I'm not sure I need to double check, make sure which of those I'm allowed to talk about more publicly, but we're definitely deeply involved in the ecosystem, very excited for what it brings to Bitcoin, both good and bad. I mean, at the end of the day, if you believe Bitcoin is anti-fragile, um, mm -hmm. you also believe that poking the bear only makes it better. Absolutely. Like stress testing. Yeah. That's why I'm glad you're on the podcast. Cause you come, you have a wide variety of experiences right now going on in ordinals. So let's, let's dive right in, but real quick, I want to say thanks for coming to the ordinals 2023 conference. Uh, you are on the core protocol panel, obviously you were part of the hackathon. So just want to thank you for doing that. I, I think that. A hackathon video was one of our most viewed videos on YouTube. So that was really encouraging to see. Uh, what was kind of your takeaway from Ordinals 2023? Um, it was kind of exciting because we're we're very, I mean, obviously with public release happening late January of the Ord client, which was the reference implementation, everything is still incredibly new. Like even right now, we still know the majority of the people who are building awesome stuff. Um but at that point, because that was a couple months ago, two months ago now, does that sound about right? Yeah, May. Yep. Um, it was in, it was really exciting to walk into a room and very quickly, 
every time you'd meet somebody be like okay i know who you are we've talked in a twitter space about this one very focused part of bitcoin and then also the mind share in the room was insane because you could have these conversations like is there a fundamental issue with this one particular part of bitcoin is this something we need to be looking at in that's not a conversation you usually get to have in your daily life i don't know if you've tried to talk about like injecting arbitrary data and witness data uh, with random people in your life, but they don't usually appreciate it as much. Whereas that audience, I'm pretty sure we could have just done a like bite for bite breakdown of witness data and they would have all been completely entertained by it. Absolutely. That was, that was well put. I think you even mentioned to me after like, we could have gone on longer and I completely agree that panel could have gone on for an hour and, uh, but still covered a lot of ground. There's so much to talk about when it comes to that core protocol. And one reason I, I wanted to have you on the podcast, cause you're a critical thinker and it's sometimes hard to like point out problems and weaknesses, but it's so necessary for the health of a protocol. So I want to walk through a few things with you, starting off with past challenges and solutions to the protocol, then we could talk about any current challenges and solutions and then future challenges that maybe some people are seeing and aren't seeing. So first, what were these first challenges starting, let's call it January, uh, that the protocol has has faced? Um, well, I mean, let's let's address probably the most, quote unquote, I love, I hate to use the word, but I love to use it when I'm being a little sarcastic, the most problematic. Uh, was the the social pushback from people who like me and you love Bitcoin, mm-hmm. um, but may not have had either a thorough enough understanding of the technical aspects to understand why they might be opposed or not opposed, and instead allowed themselves to be caught up in a an ideology of Bitcoin as opposed to the technology of Bitcoin and. It resulted in a lot of very strong social pushback from a lot of long-term Bitcoiners. Uh, And then it also created kind of a schism because on the other hand, there were people like, I mean, you've you've been Bitcoin longer than I have. And you embraced it relatively early. And I think a lot of Bitcoiners did. So it was kind of this moment where a lot of people realized that one, none of us understood Bitcoin enough. Um, I've learned something new about Bitcoin almost every day since February. And two, we realized that a lot of the gaps in our knowledge were being filled with ideological nonsense that was largely um, perpetuated by people who were well-intentioned, but didn't have the technical cap- like knowledge to really fill in those gaps. So you pad over them with, you know, well, yeah, we just believe this instead of why. So that was probably the first immediate problem is the social challenges, um, in my that's opinion. That's interesting that you didn't mention anything about the protocol itself, but like what the protocol faced in terms of social structure, because ultimately Ordinal's protocol is still a social contract, right? It's a social delusion to say yeah. this this protocol, this number theory is real um, and is worth it. So um, Exactly. Uh, at the end of the day, we all believe in in that this makes sense. Um, and I didn't bring up the protocol because at its core, I don't actually consider uh, this is this is probably where I diver like diverge a little bit from most people. Ordinal theory is mathematically sound as far as I'm concerned. So at the end of the day, it's whether you choose to use that that framework or not. Um, so, for instance, I don't use uh, 
a lot of BIPs to, to use a different type of framework that we commonly use in this space. But that doesn't make them any less sound. It just means I don't personally have a use for them. Yeah. Um, but instead of viewing it that way, we had a lot of weird pushback where people didn't understand that the core idea of uh, permissionlessness. So I think that was honestly a bigger threat than any sort of technological threat, because if the principles are mathematically sound, there's not really much that can be an issue there. Now, that's for ordinals, aka ordinal theory. If we're going to talk about the reference implementation, oh, there were all sorts of fun challenges. Um, early on, everything was in taking significantly longer to index. And uh, if you remember, I believe it was late January, there were a few patch push, patches pushed where you would have to re-index. Mm -hmm. So if you were involved and you were trying to use the reference implementation, you were probably running indexes way more than you ever thought was reasonable. Uh, you may not have already had a Bitcoin node with TX index enabled unless you were running your own like Lightning node, which to be fair, if you use Lightning, you probably should be doing that. Um, but that's that's more like growing pains of a beta technology. So I don't really even consider it a major challenge in terms of of like the growth of ordinals overall. Yeah, I think that's a good summary. And so to address your first point, yes, in terms of that social pushback, absolutely. And it really was a good dividing line um, in terms of Bitcoin people, because there are people like me who've been in Bitcoin, you know, for a while and were like pro, pro Bitcoin. I never used any other crypto until I want to say 2020, maybe 2021. And that was Monero and then kind of stacks in 2021. Uh, just for the smart contract stuff. But since 2011, I've never used anything else but Bitcoin. So people thought I was a maximalist, but I'm not. I'm like more of a pragmatist, want to be cypherpunk. And for me, Bitcoin is just a tool. So when inscriptions came out and when Casey told me about them back actually in De December, I thought, well, this sounds like a cool tool. And that was sort of it. And I didn't buy this argument that the data is polluting you know, the block space and it's poor <laughs> use. I'm like, no, that's, that's not. So that first pushback, it, it didn't surprise me. It disappointed me a little bit, but it didn't surprise me at all. I, I'm going to admit I was surprised, actually. I, I kind of thought that the group of people we called Bitcoin Maxis, because I had been subjected to the majority of the people I interact with, who I would call a Bitcoin Maxi, are people like you, um, Charlie Spears, or CB Spears. Um, they're these people who, in your case, like your maxi in that Bitcoin is your core focus, and then you're willing to touch, you know, stacks or Monero for their unique characteristics. You understand that there's value within these deviations. Um, Charlie is is kind of a similar way, but he's more open to like, well, I'm going to go play on the test nets. I'm going to go look at Ethereum and see why, why would we, why was this a thing that got built? Because if it got built, it means somebody had something that was unsatisfied and there's no reason we can't do that on Bitcoin as we've seen with ordinals and inscriptions. Um, so I, I kind of came into early January, early February with that was kind of my mental model of where maxis were at. So for me, it was kind of a shock to suddenly see this very aggressive pushback on something that I, I actually expected people to be very happy about. I've, I'm actually quoted a few times as saying, uh, I, I really thought this was like a love letter from Casey to Bitcoin. Like when I read his documentation, when I read what he was writing about it, when I you know looked at even the code base, everything was always structured in 
make this work in here, but also inhibit anything that's anti that doesn't fit within the ethos of Bitcoin. You know, killing IPFS pointers out of the gate instead of having that be part of our ecosystem. Technically, there's nothing preventing you from turning them on. Other than Casey established that precedent early on and made people think that you shouldn't. Um, so it was really a little disconcerting because I, I suddenly had people calling these this group of people maxis. Where every maxi I knew of were people that I thought would align with this. Like I said, you, Charlie, uh, mm-hmm. even Casey. Casey's more maxi than I think most people are. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he was the the great evil trying to kill Bitcoin in the, in the narrative. I'm like, this doesn't this doesn't align with what I'm seeing. Yeah, but this you know this has been going on in Bitcoin since early days. Like you know, when Counterparty came out, there was the same argument in UTXOs and Colorcoin. So there's always been this faction of orthodox people who see any non transaction financial transaction data as a sin and polluting the mempool and the block space. So this happened years ago and that's why it, it was changed. And we saw this again in the, in the fork wars and stuff like that. So it's kind of, everything is old is new again. And Casey is definitely. And I like how you put that a love letter. So I interviewed Aaron and Aaron Redwing a couple of days ago for the podcast. She's great. And obviously she's with, she was friends with Casey from the beginning. And she told me the story about ordinals and how, you know, he told her about it and just kind of shared that journey. And yeah, absolutely. Casey, Aaron, I mean, they are Bitcoiners to the core. And I've, I've known Casey for a while. He's always been kind of this funny Bitcoin extremist. In fact, this is funny, Cypher. So in like January, him and I got in a couple arguments because um, he was so bashing stacks so bad. I'm like, you're such an intolerant maximalist, <laughs> you know? <laughs> So I remember that. I mean, he came out really hard against stacks. Yeah. And at the same time, all the Bitcoin maxis were still losing their mind about him. I'm like, even if you're going to be this, um, I've heard it referred to as yellow jacket maxis. I don't really, really appreciate the term because I think it's a lot of it is that everybody has their own development timeline where they embrace the tech and begin to understand the principles. But a lot of that type of member of the community were attacking him while he was actively attacking the things they hated. Yes. And it was it was mind-boggling. I, I really still struggle to understand what the catalyst was that started that social wave. I think it's also people having built their image on being a certain way and being married to a certain image and also feeling like they were influencers. And I think they realized, wait a minute. Ordinals is going to bring in a whole new crop of innovators and developers and artists, and they're going to crowd us out. So I think, I think there was that. But, you know, I think the protocol so sound, like you said, ordinal theory itself. But then you also said, hey, the implementation has some challenges. And you brought, brought up the indexing issues, which that was an issue. Um, what about right now? Let's jump to, uh, or th- were there any other past challenges, like in the first two months? You talked about the re-indexing. Uh, yeah. Think of anything uh, else? So let's look at uh, late March, I believe, was when the the community started to become aware of it. Obviously, those of us deeply involved in looking at it every day at a technical level, we're already discussing it, but we started to mention it publicly because we realized it was going to affect everyone. There was this idea of like inscriptions being missed, even though they, depending on your definition of an inscription, should be valid. 
Um, and that that led to the eventually the discussion that led to what what the ORD reference implementation calls cursed inscriptions, which are inscriptions that don't fit its implementation. Um, and I think that was a really big challenge that I'm not sure we we knocked out of the park as a as an ecosystem and as a community. Because cursed inscriptions is a solution to it, but I I don't know if it was the best possible solution. And I think it may have just been an expedient solution to avoid the uncomfortable discussion that happens when you have to really define what something is. Because like I can I can go on a stage and I can tell people this is what an inscription is, right? Mm -hmm. And that's very easy at a high level to say, yeah, it's data within the witness data on Bitcoin. Easy peasy you know, tied to ordinal theory. Um, but when you actually get down to like the really tight knit technical details of like define what an inscription is, it's very easy to have edge cases. So is it the first input to a reveal transaction? Why can I not make it the second input to a reveal transaction? Why can I not have multiple of these within a re inputs to a reveal transaction that all have their own data for their own inscriptions? Uh, and these are questions that instead of instead of resolving right then and there, we we didn't have. And this is I, I think everybody involved who had a meaningful voice at the time should take some form of responsibility for this. So like I should have probably had a stronger stance than, hey, let's see what everybody else feels like. Um, but by not by nobody being willing to take that that step up and be like, hey, this is how it probably should be. We ended up with a solution that may not be optimal. It's going to lead to development challenges down the road. But we did end up with a solution because we have Raf Ordinali uh, who stepped up and kind of got us back moving the right direction again because we had kind of hit a stalemate or a, a stale stage of development. Yeah, let's let's dive into that more and especially as an example of governance of an open source protocol when there are conflicting interests and parties and voices. So basically to, to, cause this is important cause this will continue to happen right in, in order. There'll be other things that will pop up and well, who gets to decide and why do they decide that way? So as you said, you guys, a couple of you guys were kind of bringing this up, this issue up. And so let's, let's break this down. There are people who maintain or right there. That's they're the maintainers and Casey's obviously running that. So you would think, yep. well, they get to decide. Right. It's just whatever they say is, but that's not what happened. So can you break down the different groups? And then there were there sort of the inscription, the artist type people. What are the what are the groups that decided or didn't decide what to do so, with this problem? I think the majority of it was there were a lot of very technical users who had ideas that may have been harder to implement or less expedient and would have required more education, more documentation to express them to the users who were less technical. Uh, a great example, I proposed a tagging system that would have allowed us to handle numbers going forward without the need to use negative numbers. Um, I believe Nick proposed just straight up follow what's on chain. On chain is, is number one with the most permissive indexing possible. Um, I remember Danny had a proposal that was relatively like, it was very sound, but it was very technical. Uh, these were, were great options on that side, coming from technical members of the community. Um, a lot of the more art-aligned people were very attached to maintaining their current inscription number 
uh, which, while it's illusory, it also did have value to them. So I understand that defensive nature. You know, I mean, if you if you found value in something, whether it's real or not, doesn't really change that you value it. So, you know, that was why my solution was trying to maintain that numbering for them as an option, as like with optionality. Um, but they, they were largely opposed to following the on-chain uh, items and defining it permissively to allow for that, which the solution means that now you either have to have like block heights that you do activations at, very much similar to how Bitcoin works, or you run into the issue that you wouldn't be able to index from the first inscription if you wanted to have upgradability, which means either you kill the future development of Ward or you have block height activations. Uh, I'm not really a fan of either of those. This isn't really a public secret. I, I think block height activations add extra complexity where it's not needed. And I think that hobbling a brand new, freshly born, bouncing baby of a protocol before it's even had time to walk is a waste of a really, really good opportunity for Bitcoin. So, you know, I don't, I don't think we solved it in the optimal way. I think we solved it in a way that will come back to make us have this discussion again. It's inevitable when we start doing these block height activations and they break a lot of the software built around the industry we're going to have to have the conversation again. And I hopefully it seems that people have got their teeth into this enough now that I think we'll really be able to drill down into like, what do we as an ecosystem and an industry and a community want? Um, you brought up governance. Uh, I'm going to kind of say a quick piece on that just to kind of preface that discussion. If we end up going that direction. Yeah. I very much like Bitcoin's initial governance model. Um, as flawed as it is, having a figurehead who step comes in, establishes a precedent and a model and an ideal, and then steps away uh, is incredibly effective from an open source software development and ecosystem standpoint. Um, Satoshi did this. There's There's been multiple instances throughout Cypherpunk, you know, the history of Cypherpunk tech that have done this, where they build something cool. They make sure people understand their intent, their ideology, and then they step away from it to allow that to grow without the um, without the influence of an of an individual leader. Because as powerful as that is to have an individual leader, it's great. It makes things very streamlined, very optimized. It also means that you you lose the ability for people to really embrace the technology at a personal level because it's somebody else's tech. It also means people don't take responsibility for it themselves uh, because, you know, why would I devote an extra couple hours of my week to go work on this one specific ordinals piece of software? I'll just wait for Casey to build it. Why will I, why would I go report this bug on Bitcoin core? I'll just wait for, you know, Satoshi to come fix it. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, I... it's, it, it's a, it's a real problem that you have to think through. Um. So I, I actually am, I, I think we're in a good spot. I do wish that we had had, because he was busy attacking the Stacks ecosystem, <laughs> if you remember, yeah. uh, I felt like that was a good indicator of where he feels about the industry, but I don't think it had the ability to communicate well to a lot of people that, that sort of ideology. 
And I think that is probably another and probably the final one of the early problems I would bring up. If he had been capable of explaining that viewpoint in a way that started good conversations, which it did in the end, I had very excellent conversations with multiple people from the Stacks ecosystem. Um, still not a fan of Stacks, but I'm my my complaints are are sound. It's not like I'm hating it out of nothingness, but it also isn't like I'm hating it like actually hating it. It's just I I have things I disagree with with how it's you know built out. Um. But that's not what the majority of people took out of it. Yeah, yeah. I remember that with Casey. So I, I, I'll i talk about that with, I'll hit that point with Casey and then work backwards to, to all those cursed inscriptions. So I remember being upset with Casey because he was basically telling me that this isn't part of ordinals and this is the right way to do it. And you can't start bringing in stocks to this thing. And I'm like, wait a minute, this is an open source software. I can do whatever I want. But then at the same time, it's like, well, wait a minute. Casey was trying to set a precedent and set a tone because it is his baby. So yep. I, I, I saw him going through this weird thing where he was like, this is how it should be. I spent a year working on this and I'm trying to set a good example and set a good ethos and everything else. Because like you said, that's very important. That's kind of what Satoshi did. But at some point, you got to kind of give up control. And I, could, I can imagine how hard it is and then also other people, it's like this weird tension, right? Because I saw you do this as well, where you would say, hey, this is kind of more in line with ordinal theory and governance or whatever it is. And then there was, you know, others might say, well, no, Cypher, like that's your version of ordinals. But like, that's just part of the fight of saying, well, what is this? It's open source, but yet there should be a strong leader who walks away. And I think Casey has actually done a good job with that. And then, so going back to this cursed inscription thing, because this is so important, because like you said, it's going to keep coming back. It seemed like what happened there, maybe I'm wrong, but my take on it was that people who were heavily invested financially in their particular inscriptions being a certain number were absolutely not going to have their numbers reorganized yep. or whatever, which I think is such a terrible argument. And I was so unsympathetic because I'm in it for the tech, believe it or not. Um, it's kind of funny to say, but I love the tech and I love the theory and I love the cypherpunk, what it can do. And having your monkey ordered properly, monkey JPEG makes it worth more because it was numbered. I was less sympathetic to that, but it seemed like there was such a push from that reasoning, but value is subjective and money is real. So that's, I think to me, the big tension is going to be between probably this is a lot of software um, is core, like good technical reasoning for things versus financial interest. Do you see that yeah. as, as tension? In I think that's, I think that's probably the single largest tension in every open source community. But if you build it on top of Bitcoin, you know, the hardest money, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> then it becomes even worse, right? Because now we're talking all the conflict and challenges and, you know, high level discussions that can be had around open source software to begin with. But really, we're we're then taking that software and writing directly to the hardest money on earth. Yeah, um, that is a recipe for conflict. It's it's you couldn't ask for a better situation for conflict. To be very clear, I actually think Casey, if if you asked anybody to navigate that set of challenges and set a good precedent, I would say he did amazing. Like, yeah, I agree. 
you know, there's a reason I speak positively about Casey and it's not because I'm and I'm an idealist. It's because I'm a realist who understands I would have raged so much harder than he did on Twitter. Like the community would have had to ostracize me if I had to deal with people coming in and, you know, mutilating my baby like that. So I think absolutely amazing how that all worked out. But now we have to, now the community has to step up and really solve these discussions of like, where is the balance between money, open source software, and how do you navigate that at a personal level? So as a cypherpunk, like I want to open source everything I write. As a realist who also wants to eat, I work for a company that doesn't, you know, that wants to open source everything we write. But at the end of the day, you can't as a business. Yeah. Um, so then already, before we even make it to the level of having this discussion externally, the discussion of finance versus, you know, open source permissionless cypherpunk ideals already clashes there. And this is true of everyone. Anybody who's working on uh, Stacks Bridge for name services probably had a uh, some funding from the Stacks side. They're, they tend to be very good about providing for their developers, in my experience. And as such, they have a financial interest to look out for certain conditions and, and criteria. Um, maybe that doesn't affect their willingness to open source something, but maybe that affects the design structure, which side, you know, leads, which side, you know, this sort of thing. And this is true everywhere. And I think it's important to be honest about it and understand that it's everywhere. I said to a city councilor recently, and he he first he was like, he thought I was being mean and attacking him for saying it. I said, everybody's bought and paid for. At the end of the day, we all have to eat. Everybody's yeah. bought and paid for. It's a matter of if you can be honest and say, I, you know, I, I'm receiving this funding. I'm being paid by Luxor to build Ordinal Hub. I have a vested interest in some things remaining closed source for a short period of time or even, you know, not at all. In some cases, maybe open sourcing something is actually the the best play to that. But I have a bias. And as long as you acknowledge those biases, I think you can eventually resolve the finance versus open source discussion. But as you said, these people had a financial interest in their number being maintained, this fictional illusory number. And a lot of them weren't willing to be honest that it wasn't about the tech. It wasn't about the number even. It was about that the number provided a dollar value to their monkey or their pit or their penguin or their Pepe or, or their their one word inscription of yeah. their first name. Yeah, there was there was a financial interest that people weren't ready to be honest about. Yeah, well, and I'm, I'm yeah, sorry. no, this is I, this is why I'm glad you came on because because we need to have this conversation. And I think you're exactly right that if people could just be honest, if not with others, at least themselves. And say, hey, this is my bias. I have to feed my family and I have an interest, but let me just be honest. And I didn't know that you were aware of Stacks naming debates, but that, that's a whole nother topic for another day. <laughs> but yes, this is a tension between users and interests. And so I'm glad we're, we have this podcast episode to say, hey, this is, when we have these conversations, we need to say, what are the financial interests? Who loses? Who wins? And let's just put it out there. Okay, that's done. Let's go through the technical arguments. Okay, 
that's done. Now let's see if reason will kind of prevail in any sort of way. But you know, the cursed inscriptions, <laughs> it didn't turn out terribly, but it could have turned out so much worse. Oh, absolutely. And this is why I gave such large props to, you know, Casey or Nally and Raf, who kind of buttoned that up. The discussion had ran too long because everybody who had the ability to build it was either disgustingly busy. Those of us who weren't, you know, didn't have financial interests tying us up at the time uh, or had financial interests that made us unwilling or unable to go build it the another way. So they came up, they realized, and this is this is opinion to be very clear, but as an outsider looking into the team at the at that moment, my understanding was they they decided to put a bow on it because the community discussion wasn't going to lead anywhere. And if it did, the most financially motivated actors were going to be the first movers. And the financially motivated actors in that specific case were not the most technologically advanced users. So, you know, yeah. I, I think Curse Inscriptions was an excellent outcome compared to other outcomes that could have very plausibly been the way we went. Absolutely. So it turned out okay. And it's just one messy, messy thing, but it turned out okay. And I guess that's the goal. And it, it, so it was interesting. So, so for people to understand, ultimately, like Raf, Ordinali, Casey sort of decided in a way but it was also based on like feedback, social pressure, other factors. Is that, is that fair to kind of say? Yeah, they, they satisfied the conditions of, so, I mean, I'd say even to a certain extent, it satisfied some of my conditions. It leads to bad technological problems that we have to solve, but it satisfied the condition of, I think we should index everything that's on chain. Cursed inscriptions technically are indexed. Um, it didn't tamper with the numbers of those who had a financial motivation to keep their number the same. So it satisfied those conditions. They've really threaded this very fine line um, of satisfying the maximum number of members of the community as possible. Uh, and they did so in a technologically expedient way. So that way it could be built and done before it became a larger mess. Because I think if you had left the discussion longer and you had really drug out that that discussion of, do we want to do cursed inscriptions? I think you would have actually seen probably pushback where people said, oh, no, no, we don't want to do cursed inscriptions because those will be a lower number than my number. And that make it more, no, like immediately you, you see the dilemma. People are going to start coming up with ridiculous ideas of value. Um, so, yeah, so I think- that's it. It's an interesting point because it's it's is it centralization that Casey and Ordinali and Raf did that? Well, no, but there is points of control. And so I think that worked out and hopefully that set a precedent in a good way of how future conflicts can be solved. But this is the cypherpunk world. And I want to switch gears a little bit to talk about that because you gave a talk on, I can't remember the exact title, but something like this ordinal cypherpunk, something along those lines. So I want to talk about that. Um, in your opinion, why is, is, well, first of all, is ordinals cypherpunk? And if so, why? Sure. Uh, the idea of putting DIDs in a distributed format that can be passed as fungible coins when you don't want them to be a DID is very cypherpunk. Um, now, I would argue that we we need to do a lot more to make this truly a cypherpunk tech. Currently, all of these DIDs are public. 
uh, it's the classic Bitcoin versus Monero debate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe there's an argument to be made that if we could come up with some means of abstracting the content of an ordinal, you could build the IDs that were private, ex- except when you wanted to expose the contents of them. That's a that's an amazing idea. I've actually had a gentleman during one of the hackathon. Actually, he won. I believe he won the hackathon at Ordinals 2023. He was first or second place. His yeah. idea actually would enable that as a side effect. I don't believe it was even his intent, but it was a u- unique outcome that was enabled by that. Was that the attorney? Uh, lawyer cat. Yes. Yes. Okay. So with his completely meme naming of his project, which was great. Yeah. So if for, for those who don't like lawyers, actually don't, don't hate on all the lawyers because they can contribute to ordinals of all things, but yeah. So going out to the, to the IDs. Yeah. That's yep. yeah. So in that way, it's cypherpunk that it's built on top of, you know, the best cypherpunk money in the world. I won't say the best possible. Maybe there are improvements. We don't know yet. That's the purpose of Bitcoin. Push the limits and whatever is the best Bitcoin will probably become. Um, With that in mind, right now, I feel pretty confident that Bitcoin is probably the best cypherpunk money in the world, followed closely by something like Monero. Um, You know, because, again, that classic debate. Uh, If we could bring the benefits of Monero into Bitcoin through this DID system, then not only would we have built this on top of the best cypherpunk money in the world, but we would make it even further the best cypherpunk money in the world. So there's that side of it. Uh, It enabled a lot of people to get involved in cryptography who otherwise wouldn't have. Um, So the amount of people who went from, I know how to install MetaMask to I'm going to run a full node and now I custody my own keys and I've got a hardware wallet and I, you know, I've got proper backups. I learned what a Shamir secret share is. Like these people came out of nowhere and in some cases barely knew how to function within the Ethereum ecosystem and went from that. And in the span of two or three months, now of now a few of them have spoken publicly at conferences hmm. on very deep technological topics that are very relevant to the future interests of Bitcoin. And it's, you know. As a cypherpunk, if you if you are opposed to that, then maybe we're not the same type of cypherpunk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's where I think in terms of maximalist, I never felt comfortable with that. Some people used to call me that, but I, I just didn't ring true because for me, it's cypherpunk. So what can help individuals against more powerful adversaries? And it's by leveraging code and leveraging cryptography. And I, I love Monero. I, I like Monero in, in some ways more than Bitcoin. Don't tell anyone. I hope no one heard that. But I, I love Monero. But you bring up some good points about Bitcoin being cypherpunk money. And what is actually more powerful, money or speech? And I would say speech because there's a lot of things that have happened, revolutions that weren't well financed, but they had the propaganda, they had the word, they had the art, they had the persuasion. And I would say that inscriptions are free speech that is very difficult to censor. And there's not Monero inscriptions. So if you want a free speech platform, it is Bitcoin. It is UTXOs. It, it is easy to track. But you know what? Censorship resistant UTXO speech. I mean, that's cypherpunk, if you ask me. I, I seldom do this. If you would, if you're willing to let me for a moment ramble on this topic. Please it ramble. It very deeply to my soul. 
Uh, normally, I'm struggling to cut my words back and get within a reasonable time limit. Look, cryptography is the it's at least tied, if not greater than the second greatest protection you can have for your, you know, all your freedoms. Um, anything you can't defend with cryptography probably can only be defended with violence. And that's a sad part of being human in the modern world is violence still is a very powerful factor, right? With that in mind, freedom of speech and freedom to transact have become merged over time. Your ability to speak is your ability to spend money and to transact freely. And what I mean by this is if you work two 40-hour-a-week jobs to get by, you're in California, you're paying you know, a large portion of your taxes, uh, and you're barely getting by every month, you're not going to go protest. You're not going to go exercise your freedom of speech. You're not going to write blog posts with deep technical insights about how we can better use cryptography to protect our freedom of speech. No, you, you're going to work and go home and use your very limited time to try to enjoy your lifespan that you're trading for that ability to live your life. Um, so the ability to transact, the ability to have that be integrated with the very technology that also enables the freedom of speech to be protected against all adversaries. I won't even use the phrase foreign and domestic cryptography doesn't care who your adversary is. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the intertwining of those makes natural sense to me because at the end of the day, let's imagine that I, I want to protest, uh, I'm actually going to take a very extremist statement, understand that this is a hypothetical, but let's imagine that I wanted to protest uh, activities of the CIA involving detainment of prisoners. That could, in the modern world, we're very quickly approaching a point where that could result in me being placed on lists that may restrict my access to banking. We have all the laws in place to enable this already. Um, if I were to lose said access to banking, I may also lose access to funds within those accounts at those institutions. So in a lot of ways, not only is it that having access to funds enables you to exercise your freedom of speech, your freedom of speech could even re restrict your access to funds. It goes both ways, right? Two-way street. Mm -hmm. So I think, is it perfect? No. But... A cypherpunk should be very excited about conflating these two because they're already conflated and we might as well turn them both into a simultaneous weapon instead of trying to say it's only the hardest money on earth. Only being the hardest money on earth is pointless. What are you going to do? Buy and sell the same things you're going to buy and sell anyways? It needs to be the hardest money on earth and also be the best communications platform on earth. Uh, to be fair, I'm not even speaking about Bitcoin when I say this. I mean cryptography across the board. Um, why why can it not be all of these? Why can cryptography not solve all of these problems simultaneously? I think it can. I, I say this pretty often. I want your grandma to go on Noster and zap her, her grandkids' money, and I want her to do it permissionlessly. I don't need anybody to tell her that she's allowed to. I don't need Apple, the Apple App Store to tell her she's not allowed to use Zaps in Damas because, hey, uh, we, we need a cut of that. No, that's not, that's not how things should be. I don't need her to check with a bank to see if she's allowed to spend that money in that way. No, I want her to be able to go do that 
permissionlessly, trustlessly. She just shouldn't need to trust anybody. It should be easy to verify if designed properly. And I want it to be, this is the part where I guess I probably defer from a lot of other cypherpunks. I don't think your grandma needs to go learn cryptography, though. She only needs to learn enough to verify that she's doing things safely. She doesn't need to be able to go roll her own, you know, AES-256 cipher. Like, as long as she can verify that, that's all I expect out of end users. We should build the tech to make it easier on them so they can, you know, live their lives. The average user doesn't want to do all that extra work. Yeah. Well, now, now that Bitcoin has ordinals and inscriptions, we get speech and money at the same time. And Nostra is an interesting thing. I like to make fun of Nostra, but definitely there's <laughs> some potential there. Um, I should do a whole episode on Nostra. Um, but yeah, I mean, with Bitcoin, you know, I love Monero, but it doesn't have inscriptions. And so if we think about a person who is in a, a regime, you know, Iran, North Korea, California, places like that, they could be like Bitcoin only in terms of their transactions and in terms of their speech. And they can get pretty far with expressing their political views on Bitcoin and transacting in Bitcoin. So ultimately, you know, ordinals are cypherpunk um, because of that, because it is both it is both free speech money and censorship resistant um, expression. And so that's the beautiful thing. And I hope more realize that. And that's another reason why I wanted to have you on the podcast is to talk about this subject, because I think in, in all the hype of monkeys and inscriptions and collections, I think we really have a treasure here that isn't appreciated by enough. And I hope, you know, with this, we can kind of make people more aware of that. Yeah. And this, this ties in very well to things that I'm, I'm deeply interested in. So obviously I'm burning 90 plus hours of my week building stuff that I'm very excited about for Ordinal Hub. But in my very limited free time that I'm not actively building cool tech for them, I, I think this, this is something that I've been trying to explore whenever I can. I'm building a list of books that if the you know, fee rates continue to go down, I want to put a bunch of books on Bitcoin. Especially, I would, I would almost prefer to say, if a book hasn't been burned, I'm less interested in putting it on Bitcoin. Uh, if it's if it's insightful enough to make people want to burn it, that's a good indicator in my mind that it's an expression of speech that I want to protect. To be very clear, I'm not saying I want to embrace it. There's a lot of these that I think I'll probably disagree with as a cypherpunk, as a mm-hmm. um, maybe even as a decent person in some cases. But... I think if we're going to be good cypherpunks, we also have to at some point realize permissionlessness means that you should feel uncomfortable at times. You should you should be doing things that may not be in your best interest because they're in the best interest of somebody else. Yeah, you know, this just gave me an idea. It would be cool if someone made like an indexer or explorer of like inscriptions that are what you're talking about, like banned books. And I would just love to see that. And I don't want to see like, porn and like ugly, bad stuff. But I do want to see the stuff that some people would censor books, speeches, uh, you know, images of Tiananmen Square, I would love to see someone put that together. It's hard to curate because boy, you're gonna have to go through some junk or maybe it would be cool if there was some way in like, when you do the inscription to indicate this is that type of inscription, like for the better of humanity type of inscription, I think that'd be a really neat project. Well, I think I think we kind of get that as a side effect eventually. So right now we're in the infancy of 
of Ordinal. It's really funny. We feel like we've made these massive leaps in the last six months, right? But realistically, like, indexers are still struggling to stay indexed half the time. Um, Ord has had an issue within the last two weeks. Heroes had an issue in the last two weeks. We've had an issue in the last two weeks. You know, and obviously, we all had all these, everyone I named has excellent engineers who were able to step in and solve these quickly, of course. But that's an indicator that we don't even have the basics yet. I think what's going to happen is by the time we have the basics ironed out and we're ready to begin digging through this, it's going to look a lot like archaeology where you're digging through 20 million posts to, to find that gym, to find that the fact that somebody wrote an I love you note to their spouse on the blockchain. Like, mm -hmm. you know, there's so many inscriptions out there. I've, you know, early on, I, I kept the feed open. I watched every inscription coming in from, you know, somewhere just under the thousand mark till about the 14,000 mark. I've seen every single one of them. Mm. And I still know that there's, that's a my tiny little sliver of all of the total inscriptions that have been made. It's like a library of Congress for better or worse with all sorts of, all sorts of things that, that leads me to one of my final questions as we wrap up, cause we can go on for a long time, but I know you're going to have a good answer for this. Do you have an inscription or any inscriptions that you would never sell or transfer that you can share? with us that you can tell us about. Okay, so first of all, I I'm a firm believer in any inscription that I have paid for, I will never sell. Hmm. Um at this point, unless I unless in the, like of the ones I currently own, I should say. If I chose to in the future, maybe I'll I'll become a speculative trader and I'll buy a bunch of inscriptions and flip them, who knows? Maybe you can't commit to that. But every inscription I currently own, I have no interest in selling. I, I got them for a reason. Um, but if I had to pick one that I, you would have to offer me a ridiculous sum of money for, I have an Apple One emulator that I put on the blockchain back in the sub 200,000 range using local storage to load tapes from other inscriptions. It is masked as an image. If you open it on ordinals.com, it shows as an image unless you go to the content page. Can you can you tweet that or something? You're trying to keep that hidden. I have purposefully shared it in I think the only place that's semi-public where you can get the link currently is within some hidden channels that were exposed to a small subset of people in the Ordinals Discord. Um I could I could consider sharing it though. Uh I'll put it back on my radar and see if that's something. Uh, it ended up leading to a lot of really cool tech, though. So if you know the Cypherpunk Ghosts project, mm -hmm. they've been they've been educating people on how to do like get commits and stuff, which is super Cypherpunk of them to teach people to do this sort of thing. Uh, their terminal actually utilized originally the tech from my Apple One, the Apple One emulator I put on. Hmm. That's how they were able to do their cross loading. Uh, so it's very much an iterative process. I think they've gone far beyond what I had built as a proof of concept, but it's really fun to see these early experiments. And I brought this one up in particular, to be very clear. It's not that it's an Apple One emulator. It's not that it's on chain. All of these are cool, right? It's that it has a personal meaning. And my, my, my go-to statement whenever talking about what people should inscribe 
it's what has value to them on stats that have value to them, you know, in a way that has value to them, right? Because at the end of the day, if it has value to you, maybe it'll have value to somebody in the future. And if it exists on Bitcoin, it'll still be here probably until at least 2140, unless something goes tragically wrong, right? Um, so I, it, it applies not just to that. Uh, I've also said recently, and this is an opinion that some people disagree with if they're speculative traders. If you were to go buy the original inscription from Casey, the amount of money that you would need to pay for that to make sense would be inordinate. But in my mind, the moment that inscription changes hands, it has very little value. Because the story, the value is in the experimentation that happened early on, the stories that happened early on, the emotions involved early on when people were having these very deep technical discussions and learning how to communicate with a whole new subset of people that they may not have come in contact with. Um, the 16 plus hour days onboarding Bitcoin nodes. So like, I think those have an insane amount of value, but it's not the content of the inscription in some cases. In some cases, these inscriptions have value simply because you know who was there. You know that this person sat in the Discord for like eight plus hours to get their Bitcoin core node running and then didn't have their TX index and then couldn't get ORD to index. And a week later, after you've talked to them every day over and over and over again, they come back and send you an ordinals.com link for their inscription. That inscription's worth way more to me than pretty much anything else on the blockchain. Absolutely, absolutely. These The best inscriptions are kind of proof of work, not in the sense of paying the transaction fee, but of what it took you to put that in. Like Casey's first inscription, well, yeah, it's valuable because it's the first inscription, but it's really a year of him working to inscribe that. And if he sold it, that kind of loses value. And I loved your answer. See, this is why I gave you time to answer because I knew you'd have a good answer. And at Ordinals 2023, with my keynote, that was my title was, what will you inscribe? Because to me, the value is, what will you inscribe? Not will you buy? What inscription will you buy? Although there's lots of valuable things to buy. To me, the most valuable inscription is what you inscribe. And I talked to Charlie Spears. I asked him this, and he, his answer was, I think it was a picture of his wife, or like a, he said, like, I love you to his wife, something like that, which was really yeah. meaningful. And he obviously, he's never going to sell that. So you tell me what's more valuable, that or some, you know, uh, Pepe that he owns. And maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. But that's what I love about ordinal inscriptions, being able to do meaningful things, put them on a meaningful, like you said, a meaningful, you know, Satoshi, and then have it be there forever and have the option to never, ever have someone be able to steal it from you because it's protected by cryptography. Or you have the ability to transfer it and no one can stop you from transferring it. So really inscriptions are just a beautiful thing for cypherpunks. Yep. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more strongly. It's it's funny. I'm I'm a very non-emotional person by nature, but I'm gonna be honest, making people more free, putting stuff that people care about, putting codifying emotion and time and energy and human life. Because I mean, every minute you spend working on this stuff is is a minute of your life, right? Into this format that will exist far beyond people's lifespans. I mean, it is uh, 
you know, it's kind of radical to say it, but it's, it's almost a form of immortality, like writing a memoir. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why at Ornos 2023, that, that's why I said, what will you inscribe? And I gave the examples like stone Buddhas. I gave the example of the earliest art of the earliest language, because I see that as Ornos inscription as the same thing. It allows you to express something for hopefully thousands of years and no one could censor it. It's just a beautiful thing. So that was a great answer, Cypher. I think we should end on that because that is ties it all up perfectly. But I want to let you um, share where people can find you, Lex, or Twitter, wherever you would like. So people like this episode, where should they go? Sure. Uh, if I didn't say enough controversial things and you want to hear more from me, or you know, if you felt like I was controversial and you enjoyed that, I'm on Twitter at twitter.com slash Cypher, P-S-I-F-O-U-R. Uh, I also currently am employed with Luxor building Ordinal Hub, ordinalhub.com. Uh, realistically, I, I wasn't big on socials before all this. I had a Twitter that hadn't been used in about 10 years. Uh, so it's kind of interesting. I, I don't actually have a huge number of ways to reach out to me. Uh, you can reach out by email as well, outdatedconcept at gmail.com. Sorry, that one wasn't even that I really want people to email me. I just love that email. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good one. Perfect. Perfect. And someone please make a grumpy dinosaur inscription and send it to Cypher. I think that would be a great one. It's a memorable. Don't. That's going to be his new moniker, whether he likes it or not. I like it. So that's what we, he needs to stick with. That's my recommendation. Well, thanks, Cypher, for joining us on the Ordinals podcast. And this has been a great time. I think I learned a lot. I think uh, there's, we're going to have you back on the show, certainly. So final last words I'll give to you. Uh, thanks so much for having me on. It's always great talking to you. We've only had the opportunity a few times at the conference, a couple times through DMs. I don't think I have ever had a conversation with you that I haven't come out of going, man, I can't wait to talk to him again. Pleasure coming on here. Uh, Everybody who listened, thanks for sending through it. I hope it was entertaining, informative, exciting, educational, all of these things in one. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Absolutely. Thank you, Cypher. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please rate and review our show. Subscribe to the Ordinals podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or your favorite app. And follow us on Twitter at The Ord Pod. Drop us a line at podcast at org.media for topics you'd like us to cover or guests you'd like us to interview. Ordinals 2024 conference is taking place in Nashville. Early bird passes are available now. Visit org.media and sign up for our newsletter. Thanks for listening to the Ordinals podcast produced by Ord Media.